Agent 99. Barbara, I am so excited that you're here. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to be here. So that's two of us. Um, oh, God. You look exactly the same. You sound exactly this. How do you, first of all, we have to start with that. How do you do this? How do you look like you after? How do you do it? How do you do it? No, not me. You, <laughs> you are so gorgeous. Your skin is still perfect. You you just look amazing. Do, do you spend like hours on beauty regimens and stuff? No, I know. I have like three, three products, you know, <laughs> the cleanser, that's it. And, you know, mascara based lipstick, that's it. The same I've used. So, well, you just look, you must exercise. What kind of exercise do you do? Um, I, I do aerobic exercise, which I started when I was in my early 40s. Because What I kind started, of aerobics do you do? Um, I do either the bicycle or stairs. I do 32, uh, 32 flights of stairs. Or yeah. I do uh, a wow. stationary bike. And so what, what made you start in your 40s? Uh, because at that time, I, I was doing some writing. And uh, my writing partner, Joan Darling, and I got a job to write a special for PBS, local PBS in L.A., on aging. And they gave us all of this in information uh, from the geriatrics community. And they showed graphs showing how you age if you exercise and if you don't exercise. And if you exercise, the curve of aging is very gradual. I mean, there's no, there's no way to stop it, obviously, but right. it goes down very gradually. If you don't exercise, you'll be on a plateau for a while, usually around seven years, and then it dives down to another plateau. And I looked at that and it was like one of those like, yikes movements where your hair stands on it. You think I'm going to exercise for sure. And I started doing it then. And, um, and I've done it, you know, most days, uh, all these decades, really. Well, it certainly shows. I mean, you just, I'm, I'm still in awe. I'm still fangirling on you. <laughs> and speaking of writing, okay, I was telling you before we went on the air, you know, celebrity memoirs are very rarely a good read. Usually it's just somebody else wrote it and they kind of told them some stories. This book, Getting Smarter, which I don't want the, the light to be um, Getting Smarter, which you can get on Amazon or on Barbara's uh, website, and I'm going to give you all the links, is so phenomenal and beautifully written. It's shockingly beautifully written to me, because I had no idea that you were a writer, not shocking to you, but it's magnificent, Barbara. It's magnificent. I can't put it down. I could not put it down. Well, you're a writer. So you know, the pleasures of writing. I mean, mm -hmm. the first part of it is just blah, blah, blah. I mean, at least this is how I write. The first part of it, you just sort of emotionally kind of get into the scene for yourself. And mm -hmm. I pay no attention to good grammar, uh, punctuation, anything, until I have this pile of stuff. <laughs> and then the second part is the editing of it and just sort of sifting through and seeing, you know, pulling out what interests me and, um, and putting it together and then just rewriting it and rewriting it. But 
I love the process. Oh, Barbara, it took me almost 13 years to get my book out because I kept rewriting. <laughs> but yeah, how no. long did it take you to do this? Oh, gosh, I've been writing this book for years. I mean, okay, what sparked it? <laughs> the story itself sparked it. I, I mean, because I was telling the story. I mean, first of all, I, I do enjoy writing and I wrote another book earlier. But what sparked we're going to talk about that one, too. Yeah, well, what sparked this one was um, telling the story about my marriage, which is a, a kind of mind-boggling, and, uh, and and someone saying, you should write that. And I didn't know quite how to do it, and I didn't want to own the story. So I wrote this long novel. It was 360-page novel. And it was a novelized version of this, but using basically using the truth. And um, and it didn't work, and I knew it didn't work. So I rewrote it then, and took another number of months to rewrite it. Still didn't work. Then a friend of mine, Judith Freeman, who's a wonderful uh, writer, um, uh, said, "Just own the story, just tell it, and make it a memoir." And so I did. It still didn't work. And so, I mean, you know, it doesn't work when you're reading it and you're getting bored reading it. I mean, <laughs> good sign. So I then went to, um, there's a wonderful novelist, Eli Gottlieb, and he teaches at Columbia and on the side, he edits books. So I took to him and I said, what's wrong with this? And he said, it's a structural problem. And he said, I can tell you exactly what you have to do. And he told me, and I did it. And it was like I had to weed out lots of material that didn't, that interfered with the speed of the book because I wanted it to be a fast read. And it is. And <laughs> so thanks to Eli, I got a lesson in structure. And I, and it, you know, it takes an outside eye sometimes to fix a problem that is just baffling you. And then he also suggested material. I'm I'm not hearing you for some reason. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I accidentally hit the thing. You're telling my story. I had almost the same experience. So yeah. I you're you're blowing my mind. Yeah. You know Eli? <laughs> no, I don't, but I but I had I had my my version of I had David Tabatsky was my Eli, but yeah, yeah. And you learned so much. Absolutely. You know, and it, I mean, it was just invaluable. And then he would say, um, "Why? I'd like to hear what happened when your dad met Lucien. <laughs> and because my dad is a big pragmatist, really, really smart man. And so I. I your dad I, is a very interesting character in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I brought my father more into it than he had been mm -hmm. before. And then he wanted a summing up thing. Where are you now? What is your life now? And then I wanted, of course, to sort of revisit it many, many years later and uh, just kind of philosophically understand it. And um, it's not a victim story, as you can see already. Not at all. So I, it, was, it was a great adventure. I mean, he was a con man, but it was he led a fantasy life and he brought me into that fantasy life and i think that growing up when i did which was a lot sooner than when you grew up 
but growing up in the 50s, mm -hmm. uh, we were looking to men to make the adventure for us. You know, we didn't conceive of ourselves as creating an adventurous life on, on our own at that time. Although and you were very brave and doing very brave things before you met him. I mean, look, look at the career that you chose and that wasn't brave though. I mean, <laughs> you know, I auditioned and I worked, you know, and I mean, as a sidebar to the bravery of that, Agent 99 was a feminist, right? I mean, yes. She, she owned herself. She owned her intellect. She owned her position at, at um, control headquarters. She did not apologize for her intelligence, although mm -hmm. she backed off. So she didn't hurt his feelings, which was a little of the 50s left over. In right. Um, but she was more advanced than I was as a feminist mm. in those first years when I played her. So interesting. It took me a few years and the women's movement, which began in the late 60s to catch up with Agent 99. Wow. And okay, we're going to we're going to get to 99 and do all of that. But I'm for those who don't know your story, I didn't know anything about your marriage. Was it something that you kept out of the press? Was it out of did people know what you what was happening for you? Well, at first they thought I was married to the man I thought I was married to, Lucien Verdoux, a French French name. Mm -hmm. And I uh, and and two years after I married him, I I went and I was modeling during that time. I sort of mm -hmm. gave up the business. That's how how brave I wasn't. <laughs> you know, after a few years in New York and I wasn't getting anywhere, I switched to modeling. And um, during the time I was modeling is when I found out everything about Lucien. And his name wasn't even the same. Nothing, nothing, nothing was the same. And all of the fantastic stories and the fantastic adventures that I experienced with this guy who I thought was an undercover agent. Which, which is so, I mean, this is before Get Smart. This is crazy that you were thought you were living with a spy. Oh. Yes, I did. I did. And I, I wore his spy coat his trench coat and uh, and and I also had a trench coat later on and, and and that trench coat I had I wore on get smart so oh my god you know, there there were times when I was in that trench coat looking over my shoulder thinking I was being followed by the KGB and and that was before get smart so that was, is so wild later it was art imitating life in a funny kind of iron, ironic way can you tell us how you met him, uh, this this yeah. suave Frenchman? I met him in the lobby of Carnegie Hall. I had, <laughs> I was I had a job as a showgirl in a remake or, or a, 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 what do you call it? Uh, they revived um, Zigfield the Follies, and I was a showgirl walking to music in elaborate headdresses and skippy clothes. And I was taking dance lessons in a studio at Carnegie Hall. And I had just finished my lesson. I was waiting for a friend of mine to meet me for dinner. And suddenly I hear this voice with a very distinct French accent saying, pardon, if you please, do you have charge for the telephone? <laughs> so I gave him in, in those days, uh, he gave me a quarter. I gave him 
two dimes and a nickel. The phone was only 10 cents in those days. Um, he went to the phone. I'm still looking for my friend, Doug. He comes back and says, excuse me again, if you please, but I have some zing in my eye. Can I, <laughs> can you, and he hands me a white handkerchief for mm. me to examine his eye. This is how good he was. Wow. And I could find nothing. And in the meantime, uh, my friend is not showing up and, and we begin talking and I find out he's French. He's the half brother of Jean-Pierre Aumont. He knows all of these French actors that I'm, I'm just addicted to French films at that time, you know, and I, uh, and he knows them. And he even went for a whole year with Gerard Philippe's girlfriend and Martine Carroll was, he had an affair with her and, um, and my friend Doug never showed up. And so <laughs> I went to dinner with Lucien and that was the beginning. So was, was your love story, so your love story that was in the press was as you thought he was, did it, was it ever disclosed I mean, I, for those who are out there who yeah, haven't read your yeah. book, they don't know that he's a con man. We're going to tell you that now. That's a spoiler. But did the world know? Um, no, of course not. Uh, no, no, of course not. No, because so, when when I when I finally left the marriage, um, why would I do that? You know, why would I hurt someone's life? You know, unnecessarily, and I. And besides, you know something? I didn't think there was anything particularly extraordinary about it. You know, that I didn't feel like a victim and never did. And it was just, you know, another incident in life, really. And also, I retained fondness for him always, because the interesting thing about people who are sociopaths is that they are they are very lovable mm. you know we think of them as being like a, a, a psychopathic killer or something no mm. no it wasn't dangerous mm -hmm. and he gave me the greatest adventure of my life I mean I never met anyone that I fell in love with to that extent again so I had that experience mm. and my, my mother said to me at the end I mean many years later when I was you know, past the next relationship, um, mother said, I'm so glad that you had Lucien in your life. And I said, I was surprised. Did your, did your mother know the truth? Yeah, she knew. Yeah, she was totally taken in too, but she knew. Mm -hmm. And I said, but even in, in view of how it ended, and she said, yes, because very few people get to be that much in love. Aww. And you had that experience. And I'm glad you did. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So, Barbara, at without giving too much away of the book, just what we what we can tell, can you tell us where things started to crack? When did you first notice that there was something a little off? Well, How did you first notice? This may be a common experience with a lot of women mm -hmm. who have an idealized. Oh, with men too, it works the other way around, obviously, have an idealized 
uh, vision of the person they're in love with. Mm. And uh, and so when little in uh, inconvenient aspects start showing, <laughs> and you're batting away the red flags because mm. they don't fit, fit into the picture that you've painted. So right. to that extent, we create the person we're in love with to mm -hmm. a great, great extent, especially mm -hmm. in the beginning when we really don't know anything about them. Right. And then as we begin to know, uh, it, 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 it's uncomfortable because we don't want to let go of the person we painted and, you know, paint a different picture or mm -hmm. older picture. And uh, so what was your question now? Uh, so when did the cracks start? Like, can you remember the first thing that you looked at and said, oh, wait a minute, something, well, that's, that's not right. Um, I, I, I know I did, and I wish I could remember specifically what they were, because I know that I was suffering from colitis, which is, can be, can be psychological. Oh, and so it was what I was trying not to notice. So I wasn't mm -hmm. even registering what unconsciously I was registering. Something was not ringing true, you know, but I. We so perhaps a, catching him in little lies or. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Little things that were inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And then when I would question it, having um, an elaborate expl explanation that would make me you know, feel like uh, I had made a mistake, you know. So, okay, so we started to discuss this before we came on the air, Barbara, but this is something I think is really important to discuss because I don't think women talk about this very much. Maybe there's men that have this experience as well, but I don't want to say we're victimized, but I know quite a few women who have been gaslit and by men who are extremely charming and convincing and who then convince us that we're crazy and we're we're making things up um did you have enough sense of self to know wait a minute something's wrong he's not or did you buy in and keep buying in and keep buying in yeah that's what I did, as mm -hmm. many, many women at that time. And see, I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear from younger women and see if they think they would have bought in. But of course, that wouldn't really be a test because they'd have to experience the charm, the adorability, the handsomeness, mm -hmm. the you know, the entire gestalt of this human being, mm -hmm. which was so attractive in so many ways. And uh, and so that there's a reluctance or you can't quite put together what, you know, what you're gleaning with what you want to have, what it seems to be established is the truth. How long would you say you, how long was the love affair without any paint to it? How long did it last before you the house of cards started to fall a little bit, would you say? Uh, uh, you know, very little fell. Uh, mm. It wasn't like a crumbling and a little cornice falling off here. You know, <laughs> the whole building went down. The whole building went down in one night. Oh. In one night. Did it really? Wait, wait a minute. I'm reading it. You're, you're, 
<laughs> I'm reading it and I'm feeling like things. Yeah, I get I guess I'm reading your reflection. So you're you're reflecting back on it. So I haven't gotten to the part where it Yeah. It, no. Yeah, it, where you wear it, it, it all came down at once, you know, and and that was an interesting moment in time. And so I had to reevaluate everything. And then, you know, I, I actually I have read that part. I did read I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I and you know, I mean, yeah, uh, but I did stay with him for a number of years after that. Uh, how how do you how did you do that? Well, he went into therapy. He seemed to be straightening out. You know, he was a gambler, so mm -hmm. I I thought the problem was mostly gambling. You know, mm -hmm. but the lying I was sort of brushing under the carpet. Uh, but we reconstituted the relationship, but it was never the same. But I did love him, you know, in the reconstituted version as well. But as I say in the book, there was a little museum in my head where I kept the original Lucien, who was this glamorous, you know, Frenchman. And um, I... And finally, it, it, he, he was good for a few years, but then the gambling took over again. Did he, was he able to transform, did he start to tell you the truth, do you think, when he was in therapy and trying to better himself? Uh, I don't, it's hard to tell. Right. It? I mean, mm -hmm. you don't know. So I, I think I got to the point where I, whatever he said, I had a tuna fish sandwich for lunch, for example. It would either be true or not true. Mm -hmm. And that was okay. I I just didn't have expectations of truth coming from him. And um, but again, there were so many other great qualities about him, which I hope I make clear in the in the book. Yes, you do. That, um, you can live with a lot with someone you love and you have you know you believe in in terms of that love. You know, I can't say I believed in him in terms of his honesty, but um, I, I, and then I think his subsequent wives never lasted as long as I did. So subsequent it, wives, numerous. Okay. Yeah, and mm -hmm. so I think maybe uh, they had a little better sense of themselves than I did. It's funny when you're seen on the screen you're seen as this confident person. Mm -hmm. You know, I could even see myself on the screen that way. Uh, but, you're, but the reality of your own life is very often different. And it took uh, a lot of psych psychotherapy, you know, which I, I maybe should have put in a bigger way in the book because um, I am such an advocate of it. It just literally changed my way of looking at the world, my way of looking at myself. Um, I'm, That's the next book, Barbara. Maybe I should, you know, because this was psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis today is very much out of favor. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's very expensive mm -hmm. and that is a problem. There's no question. 
but, um, and it takes a long time and they have shorter therapies now that are very effective. Mm -hmm. Now, that wasn't true when I was in psychoanalysis, so I can't really compare them. Right. Is that psychoanalysis um, absolutely changed my brain, literally changed my brain structure, I'm sure, because of the process which we're all familiar with, which is if you have a big problem, like you're reacting in a big emotional way, mm -hmm. uh, chances are you're reacting, you're overreacting. So why are you overreacting? And just learning how to take it back to childhood, you know, and that's the child in you overreacting and just keep going back there and back there and take it back there and get it settled back there and then look at it from the reality of the present and what really, I mean, is your life really threatened <laughs> you know, by somebody criticizing you or whatever? And it takes a long time. And uh, I was willing to do the work and I'm very grateful. And are you, and you're a changed person as a result of this? I'm certainly in my own skin, a changed person. Um, are you know. not as reactive anymore? Oh my goodness, no. <laughs> okay, this is all miraculous. I'm a 12-stepper and I've been in therapy for years and in 12 steps for years and in programs for this. And I am, reactivity is very challenging for me. I mean, I can control it externally, but internally I'm still screaming. So do you feel that you, you're, you're, you've changed the whole gestalt, the whole thing? I, it's not that I don't react. It's that I know, know what to do when I do react. Mm -hmm. and, and I do it with writing, actually. I have what I call storm pages, which I talked about in, in my first book. And I just, I just commit murder on the page. <laughs> I just go totally crazy on the page. And some pages, um, like I write like a child, like in huge letters, that kind of thing. And uh, and by the time I do that uh, and get the feeling out, you don't want to repress it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I put it on paper and not to the person I might be feeling this about. Mm -hmm. So that they have nothing to do with this huge feeling I'm having. That is my responsibility. My reaction is my responsibility. Absolutely. What they do or say that's their whatever and that has to do with them but they cannot hurt me you know and if I do feel hurt then I get it out on the page and it always ends up with mommy and daddy you know it always ends up with something from childhood of course six years old and and then it it diffuses it for me and then I apply the adult you know, who's kind of witnessing the child doing, doing this. And so how do you resolve the, okay, so I, I do something very similar. I write a letter to God. I read it to my sponsor. I burn it. I do all of this to, to not react, but there is still, okay, nobody, I love that you said nobody can hurt you because that's really the truth. I still don't believe that. I still think people have the power to hurt me, which that's, you know, cause I haven't done that psychotherapy, but so let's say you have someone in your life who's 
doing things that are not okay with you. You do your work. You get to the place where you're not reactive. What's your response to that behavior in real time? Well, if it goes on, for example, uh, I've met over, you know, in the last number of years, say I've met a woman, uh, you know, been introduced to a woman who's very caustic, right? And very critical and mm -hmm. very maybe passive aggressive mm -hmm. uh, and maybe not conscious of how she's hurting me or this could be a man, it's just a friend. And um, if it happens more than once and I see that she's not even aware of what she's doing, so there's not a way to really discuss this. Mm -hmm. I I just am not in her company. I'm, I manage not to ever be in her company because she can't help herself. Mm -hmm. You know, people are blind to their own stuff, and mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to have to be doing storm pages every time I see her. You know, to figure it out. So I protect myself from people who are toxic. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see any reason for being their friends. Why? Life is too short and there are really good people out there. That's all great. And I totally agree with you. How about with men? It gets a little trickier with men, doesn't it? You mean in a relationship with men? If you get, if it gets that far, but um, you had a long-term relationship after Lucien. Yeah. Was that a healthy relationship? Uh, it was a complicated relationship. You know, he was a good guy. There's no question. Yeah, mm -hmm. or he was he was a good guy. Uh, we were not suited for each other. And mm -hmm. after we ended it, uh, we were friends for the rest of his life. I mean, I went out to see him when he was dying. And, mm -hmm. you know, I loved him and he loved me. That he should not have been living with me, and I should not have been living with him, mm -hmm. and uh, we were both happier uh, not being together. So living alone and loving it, where did that come from? Um, when when I was out of the relationship with Bert, I I had then been with someone all my life. I mean, with my parents, then I went to college and I had roommates, came to New York, still had roommates, met Lucien, mm -hmm. moved in with Lucien. Uh, that lasted nine years. Um, Bert came into my life overlapping that. Mm -hmm. uh, he was producing the show. And, I, and then I was with Bert for 11 years. So over a period of, from the time I began with Lucien until it ended with Bert was 20 years, okay? Mm -hmm. So I was never without a guy. I mean, you, I'm sure that was true of you too. Even yes, so I, I, yeah, I wanna know what happened after Bert, what'd you so do? After, <laughs> after I, I, I left California, I came back to New York. I had an affair and it wasn't going anywhere. You know, I was thinking it would. I mean, I-, I Don't uh, we always? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I learned a lesson on that one. I, and I, from the time I got to New York, 
I was in over the period of a number of years mm -hmm. in several serious relationships. Mm -hmm. And um, did you I, did you ever live with a man again after that? No, no. And from the time I came back to New York, mm -hmm. I didn't. And and I couldn't imagine living without a guy. I, I, I it wasn't even in my worldview right the guy and uh, i so i had an affair with this guy clearly it wasn't going to end in living with him and i and i it, it was really painful you know that this was not going to go anywhere this was an affair mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't going to end with a relationship and so that ended rather quickly. And then I thought, well, I'm gonna meet someone else. I went to cocktail parties alone. I went to concerts alone. I went to everything alone so that I would be available. Yeah. You know, it, it, it never happened. It Me never either. Happened. Just those, oh, I hope you've given it up as I have because- it, I those horrible cocktail parties where you don't know anybody and you're there alone. And finally I said, I can't do that. And then you go home and you're like, why did I go? Why I did I, you that. know, and you take off the makeup and take, yes. I, ah. So I, I was, I, I was having difficulty to say the least. And mm -hmm. uh, this was at the beginning of, I mean, I, I, I had not started really serious therapy. And I went to England and uh, while I was there, I had an, an appointment with someone and I was in the, in the cab and I, I was early. And so I said to the cab driver, you can let me out here. I meant to say I'm early. I said, you can let me out here, I'm lonely. And I heard myself say wow. that. And then I thought, okay, I've got to get over this. And I began to research women who live alone in England, women who are not married, do not have a relationship and live alone. And I interviewed these amazing women who were like, wow, why would I want to live with a guy? Well, Did you, was it a cross-section of ages or was it an age? Yeah, no, mm -hmm. it was, it was cross-section. This woman was in her fifties um and a much younger woman who was a writer in mm -hmm. her 30s and uh you know if they met someone and really fell in love or something they weren't you know going to married to it as yeah. it were um but uh they were living fine lives and that was amazing to me that you could do that mm -hmm. and so then i just began researching and over a period then I began analysis and then over a period of a few years I began to love to live alone and I realized that we aren't taught how to live alone mm -hmm. and if we were taught how to live alone we would be we would consider it as I, 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 as fertile a way to have happiness in life as being in a relationship. I'm not saying it's better. I'm mm -hmm. not saying it's worse. Mm -hmm. uh, they are equal to me 
in their own ways. Mm-hmm. If you live in, with a partner, you have a built-in social life. Mm-hmm. If you live alone, you have to put in the work, you know, of having an, a fabric of friends. And mm-hmm. then they move away, they go on tour, whatever. Right. Uh, so you have enough. The other thing that I hadn't noticed is that when I was in a relationship, I poured everything into the guy. Mm -hmm. He was the center of my life. Mm -hmm. And and I remember my therapist once saying to me, well, what about the grocer? What about the person in the bank? Aren't they human resources as well? And I realized that I had not been open to human warmth from anywhere except the guy. Wow. Wait, yeah. not even with your, not even with close friends. I didn't have a lot of friends. It was always the guy. I didn't. Have uh, I children, see. Which could have been a good idea, probably. <laughs> um, and <laughs> so I began to, I began to regard the world as an opportunity for a lot of emotional connection. You know person mm-hmm. on the street i mean but you have to open your eyes and you have to be willing to accept you know that you are not alone in the world you know you, you go to a concert and everybody is connected to that pianist we're mm-hmm. all there together you know as though that pianist's heart is belongs to all of us mm-hmm. while that music is being played and how rich everything became and the other thing was that I learned to take responsibility for my own happiness. You know, <gasps> I, I wasn't looking for it on the outside. I, I, and I did stop looking for it on the outside and think, well, what can I do? You know? So what, is that, what does that look like, Barbara? How, how, how have you created your own happiness? Well, first of all, to have friends, mm-hmm. you know. And to be the one to build the, to build the bridge. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't know how it is there in LA. In in LA, when I was there, everybody entertained at home. Mm-hmm. Here in New York, nobody does. <laughs> me. I'm a New Yorker. I understand. Yeah. And <laughs> so I have people to my apartment mm-hmm. uh, for dinner. I'm not going to go to their apartment for dinner. We're going to go to a restaurant for dinner, maybe. Right. Um, and or I would have a party and then I wouldn't hear from people again because it was a party, you know. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, somebody has to be the Pearl Messa, Mesta. What, what is her name? Pearl Mesta. Uh, she was the great. Um, I don't know. Arbiter of manners in the 1950s. Oh, she was like a um, entertained diplomat. Anyway, she knew exactly what to do um that someone has to be willing to make the first move mm-hmm. and the second and the third or whatever and so tell me barbara what was that la- i'm sorry to interrupt you but I, this i i have more questions than i what was the pandemic like for you were you you moved to new york right before the pandemic oh no no i moved here in 1977 Okay, but and so you've been there straight through since then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I read something that you had 
gotten there. Okay. So you, you've been in New York. So ha oh, have you had a serious relationship since you got healthy? Uh, yeah, uh, well, I'm still getting healthy. I'm going to be there. <laughs> it's, yeah, there's, there's no graduation. Yeah, I get that. Exactly. Um, Emily, po oh, Emily Post, they're saying Emily Post is Emily, the one Emily who just, Post yeah. would, would be the equivalent. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, I, I had a series of relationships, not a lot of them. <laughs> how, many, how many can you have, at a, you know, over a period of time, but um, none of them were really uh, the appropriate relationship. I, I, I have um, a wonderful friend, male friend. I mean, male energy is nice. Yeah. And um, and we're best friends. We talk every day. So I feel like you know there's a different kind of dynamic with my male friends than there mm -hmm. is with my female yes. friends. Yes. So. I have a number of male friends, but one very, very special male friend whom I just love to my toes. And um, I, none of them would have been ideal as a partner, you know, uh, it wouldn't have worked. But in all of them, I found a way and they found a way because we considered ourselves so valuable to each other mm -hmm. uh, to and not be so doctrinaire about it mm -hmm. you know you don't have to have the whole bottle of wax mm -hmm. you know you and and you can get it from several different people you know I remember my my therapist saying I said if if I leave bird what's the what's the uh percentage of my meeting the right guy he said well maybe three percent oh my gosh oh my gosh I said um, and you're encouraging me to get out of this relationship. And he said, being in the wrong relationship is not the answer, hmm. you know? And he said, maybe it won't be one man. Maybe ah. it's a combination of several men that you get something different from each, hmm. of, the, each of the people. And uh, that was so liberating to me. Hmm. You know, you don't have to be so limited. Do you think it's possible for a man and a woman to, do you know people who, it's so hard to say, do you know people who have that relationship? Because it's never what it seems, because I'm sure people thought you and Lucienne had a perfect relationship. Do you think it's possible to be your best self as a woman with a man in a romantic relationship? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is, but I would imagine it's rare. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I mean, there are some great guys, you know, mm -hmm. some really wonderful guys, but most people in our culture have a lot of baggage, mm -hmm. I mean, women and men. Mm -hmm. So all we can do is try to try to stabilize ourselves individually and then work from that. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, are you saying, do I think there are great relationships, lifelong relationships? Do I you still have, do you, okay, you have this very, very close, wonderful male friend and you have lots of friends now. Yeah. Do you, do you still get your head turned? Does, does that spark? I has to look at you. 
you have to spark with people. I can just see it. You, there have to be men that still get your attention. Do you still hold hope that that can happen in your life? No, I, I don't, I don't look for it. I have mm -hmm. no particular interest in it to tell you the truth, mm -hmm. but I'm at an age, you know, where, you know, I'm not a young romantic anymore. So, and, but I'm in no way a cynic. So living alone and loving it, does that mean, so I get that that means in, that that it can be a perfect thing living alone, but did you, were there still men in your life when you wrote that book? Romantic men? Yes. Uh, uh, when I was writing it, no, I, I don't think I was, I was not in a relationship mm -hmm. when I wrote the book. I don't think so. But you started this line of discussion with the pandemic. You said, how yes, you I would love to hear about your life since the pandemic. Uh, well, during. Oh, by the way, Pearl Mesta, is that who you were speaking of? She's another one. They okay. were, you know, they, they were the, the rule makers. And mm -hmm. I don't think there are rules anymore, probably. No, I don't think there are. <laughs> There's nobody uh, who does that um, or needs to. Um, when the pandemic hit, and um, I mean, my life was very active. I mean, I went to concerts all the time, plays. Well, you know, New York. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you were bored in New York, there's really something wrong <laughs> with you, right? Um, my friend and I would go to movies a couple of times a week. Mm -hmm. um, I went out almost every night with one or another friend. Mm -hmm. uh, I was rarely home. And uh, in the daytime, I was here, you know, writing or doing whatever. And then the pandemic hit. And mm -hmm. I, I thought, okay, I was glad I wrote that book because there were chapters in it about how in any circumstance you can live a full life, okay? So... Okay, so here we are, and I remember the night it happened, the night it was like closed down, and we had no idea how long this was going to be. Oh, we, we, I remember saying a week, we have to stay home for a week, what are you kidding? <laughs> I know, I mean, it really hit me, and for the next six months, I did not see so much as a delivery person's face. Mm -hmm. I saw mm -hmm. not one human being for for six. Did I say six weeks? Six, yeah, months. six months. Yeah, six months. Mm -hmm. And I had a wonderful time. Uh, once I got it in gear, you know, I stayed in touch with friends. Mm -hmm. We zoomed so I could see their faces. Right. Sometimes. Not not so much, but we. Mm -hmm phoned a lot uh, my friend would come over and he'd stand down on the street and I'd come out on the balcony of my little I lived in a townhouse mm -hmm. balcony I'd be up there <laughs> he'd be down there with his mask oh. um, but um, I just designed a program for reading and um, ah you were product were you productive yes oh super yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I it was exercising, reading, being in touch with friends, uh, listening to. You could go to concerts on, you know, the, mm -hmm. that was not a problem. 
and then these amazing television series, you know. Oh, yes. Streaming. <laughs> oh, my God, the obsessive, you know, you can't wait to see the next episode. Absolutely. And it was kind of in its own special little frame. Um, it was It was a beautiful time. And I had other friends who felt the same way. And I had friends who were just absolutely so anxious and upset and miserable. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, and, and and once it ended, when you could get out, um, I didn't do as many things as I used to do. And I sort of lost interest in going to movies all the time and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, did, did you, you did you get COVID? No. I okay. I'm I'm knocking on wood. I I haven't either. Oh. So you said when it ended, you know, I I lead this band of COVID crazies. I went live seven days a week when it started because I didn't leave my house and neither did they. And I was alone and they were alone. And so we yeah. did this together. But I stayed fully masked and protected until really recently. I started getting out. I, I'm. I'm actually going to Paris for the first time. Anyway, I'm so excited. I want to, anyway, so I, um, when did you start to get back to life and how are you fully back to life? Not at all. No. I I do not go in restaurants. Mm -hmm. Do not. At all. Not at all. I eat outside. You are one of us. (laughs) Yeah. Oh gosh, that's nice. And, and well, that's why we didn't get COVID. Mm. You know, I I know where these outdoor restaurants are that have really strong heaters, mm-hmm. and you just bundle up and go there. My friends are all the same way as uh, you know. They have, feel the same way I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I have gone to a couple of concerts, masked, of course. Mm-hmm. I go everywhere nobody's wearing a mask it's as though it doesn't exist mm-hmm. and that's just not true because they're all getting COVID mm-hmm. you know and um I mean it's it's not I mean the numbers are not as high here as they were I mean they're mm-hmm. very low here actually but I wouldn't go into a store without a mask on mm-hmm. or, you know yeah. I, I will occasionally go to a concert with a, a very tight N95 mask mm-hmm. and I wait until everybody's in and then I come in and wait until everybody's out you know I how about how about with friends how about socializing with friends in in people in how do you do that if they come to my apartment mm-hmm. we all test first if we're gonna God, you them. are one of us well yeah no, I have a pile of tests in there, and mm-hmm. I'm willing to give them to anybody. Mm-hmm. You know? But if somebody comes in my apartment, either they're masked or they're tested that day. And, um, and you know, you get used to it. It's not a big deal. I never mm-hmm. understood why people objected so much to these simple little protocols. You know, I, I, and I still don't understand. Uh, maybe I didn't get the freedom gene or something. I don't know. I mean, how do you feel about that? You know, I was sort of the COVID Nazi uh, until, but I live with someone who is not. Mm-hmm. And um, I, he actually got COVID and I did not. And I was uh, 
within close proximity. It was pretty miraculous. I think that it's, I think it might be possible that some people might be resistant. I, I hate poo-poo. I hate to even say it and give it a kinahara, but, um, but in any case, um, I was the Nazi, you know, everyone had to be tested. Everyone had to be masked, all of that. And I've let down my guard quite a bit in the last few weeks. And we're going to Europe because I haven't been, I haven't been on a plane. I haven't done any of that, but we're not getting any younger. And I don't think this pen, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think COVID's going to be with us for, I don't think it's going anywhere. So anyway, we're going and I'm going to wear two masks and do the whole thing, but we're going to go. And I'm a little terrified, but it's something we've put off for three years. So we're going to go. Um, but I have let my guard down a little bit, Barbara. I have eaten inside at restaurants. I have not been to a movie in three years. Um, I have eaten inside in restaurants where it's, but I have, I can't believe it, but I have. Well, it's probably okay. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people who are doing it. Not I mean everybody seems to be doing it. I'm probably more extreme even than you are. I if think you, you if to tell you the truth, restaurants are so noisy here in New York because mm -hmm. they're little, you know, and right. the volume. Um eating outside is so quiet. Mm -hmm. but really how, okay, I didn't know they could get really outdoor outdoor New York restaurants warm enough to do that. Oh yeah. They can? Yeah. And they're not tented, they're open? They're tented. Oh, no, 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 oh, no. no. They're, okay. They're in, yeah, mm -hmm. they're sheds. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're very ventilated. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, but the heater's right over you. So you're just being like the sun, having a sun bath. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that you're one of us. This is so great. My COVID crazies are going wild. So, yeah, okay. I wouldn't worry about the plane because I don't know a person who's gotten COVID on I do. I have, but they haven't masked or, or the, or when they're eating, they take it off to eat and they take it off. Like I was talking, Paula Poundstone, a great comedian, uh, was telling me that when she's on a plane, she lifts up the mask, she takes a bite, she puts it back down. That's how I'll be eating if yeah. I have, because Paris is a long flight, but anyway, yeah. that's, that's what the, I would do too. Um, so you know, and and I, I I have to tell you this as a sidebar, but I met a Parisian pilot, um, Xavier, who it turned out was not a pilot. Oh boy, I I have we have things to talk <laughs> have things to talk about. Um, okay, so so let's talk about your career because everybody wants to know. Everybody wants to know. So you sang, you sing, you dance, you acted. What 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 was the first thing? How'd you get the bug? What what bit you? I I think it's the story I tell in the book about being in the first grade band <laughs> and having a triangle solo in the percussion <laughs> little percussion band. Kids are beating on oatmeal boxes and tin pans, and <laughs> the teachers playing the piano. And then there was this space where I played. I had a solo. And I went ding, ding, ding on the triangle. Mm. And I looked out into the auditorium and saw my mother looking at me. 
I love that 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 strike gives me goosebumps. Yeah. When I read it and now when you say it. Yeah. And I I didn't want to get off the stage. It mm -hmm. was just pure attention that just felt like bliss, you know. Mm -hmm. And I then I wanted to be a trapeze artist. <laughs> you know, but it was always show business. It was mm -hmm. always something along those lines in the high school, the school plays and stuff like that. So I, I was one of the lucky people who, when I went to college, I knew, absolutely knew what I was And you doing. went to what became Carnegie Mellon. I mean, that, that's a very, that's one of the best drama schools in the, in the world. Yeah. In, at that time, it was the best in the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I graduated from there and came to New York. And then, you know, did a little thing here and there, but mostly, you know, doing temp jobs and and ended up modeling after a few years. And I uh, and I didn't miss acting, uh, to tell you the truth. And I didn't really have an intention of getting back into it. But um, I had met Colleen Dewhurst. Do you know she was a great? I actor. saw her on Broadway in Virginia. Oh God, I love Colleen. Oh I loved her. She, oh, she would have been wonderful in that. Mm. And uh, she took me under her wing, uh, Colleen. She was very maternal. Mm. And uh, I was doing just a, a one-line thing that my agent sent me to. I didn't even want to go to. Uh, George Scott was doing a series at that time. And so uh, I said no. Uh, he said, it's just show up. Uh, it wasn't a scene with him or anything. You know, it was just background, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was there. I I had met George, but I I was I never dreamed of you know going up to him or anything. And uh, Colleen happened to be on the set that day. She was married to him. Yes. Said, hey, come into George's dressing room. And George said, "Hey, do you want to play my girlfriend next week?" And I did. And Talent Associates, who produced Get Smart, produced that show. And that's, that was the right place, right time, just absolute chance. And I, I didn't audition for Get Smart because they had used me in another one of their shows where I played an industrial spy, kind of sexy, spoofy thing. And when they got the script for Get Smart, they said, we just saw her do that role. So they just gave it to me. Wow. Yeah. And you were a virtual unknown. I mean, you'd yeah. done this thing with George C. Wow, that's crazy. You had that famous commercial. You had there was a famous top you, you were on a animal rug or <laughs> right? In, in, and you were like purring. You were purring. <laughs> you were purring. I was rolling around selling um hairdressing top brass hairdressing that Revlon made on an endangered species I mean today could oh you my commercial? oh my god they'd spray you down yeah. it, had you already done you had already done man from uncle right you had already done man had yeah, already after I appeared with George Scott I I did several of the, the ongoing series just from the exposure uh on his show and uh but it was all within a year and a half from the appearance with him. 
Were you already with Lucien during this period? I was. I, I was. I had been with him for. Oh. Oh yes, I know this. I read this. You years. Right. 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 And, no. So there was no. There was no. You didn't. You didn't with Robert Vaughn or with Ilya Koryakin or oh, no, any. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, but who wouldn't have a little crush on Ilya Koryakin? Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Was he gorgeous? My yeah. goodness. Um, okay, so did you have? Did you ever have an on? Because we're going to talk about you and Don, because I know it's not what it appeared. But did you ever have with an on-screen? Did you ever have that rapport, that that chemistry, with someone in the re, in real life that you were having an on-stage screen? Oh, what an interesting question. I, uh, you know something? I think one reason actors love acting is that they can be more intimate mm -hmm. than they can be in real life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because you know the script and unconsciously you know where it's going to end up and you are totally safe. Wow. To be open. And I, because I've heard actors say they never feel really alive unless they're acting. Mm, that's not and, true of you, I don't believe. No, no, it isn't mm -hmm. true of me. No. Um, I mean, that is one way to feel really alive is mm. to act because the concentration and the communication mm -hmm. is so acute. Right. Between, <clears throat> excuse me, the two people. But... Um, yeah, that, that that's really interesting. Um, so do you kind of fall in love with every leading man, kind of just a little, although not Don Adams, but other than Don, which we'll talk about, have you kind of had that experience? Uh, when I worked with George Scott, mm -hmm. I just got a huge, little crushy kind of mm. crush, <laughs> mm. you know, not to be acted on, but in my fantasy, mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh, yeah, because you're in this perfect love situation, mm. and that and life doesn't deliver that, mm. you know, ordinarily. How and about Lawrence Luckinbill? <laughs> I did. I didn't work that long with Larry mm. because mm. we did a play together. Mm -hmm. um, very kind of hectic a rehearsal schedule, and then he left after two weeks mm. in, the, in the play. Mm -hmm. So I I never got to know him really, mm -hmm. you know, um, and and also the nature of that play, mm -hmm. there, it was two people who really basically hated each other. Ah, well, <laughs> <laughs> how about now? I know you did the Dean Martin show a few a, a handful of times. What Dean? I mean, who could be uh, sexier than Dean? Yeah, I mean it it. Um, it, it, it's not this, uh, doing a sketch mm -hmm. with an audience. It's not quite the same as being on camera doing sure. a role where you're actually, you know, having kind of romantic thing going on. He was, you, did you know him? No. Oh, God, no, but I wish, no. Everybody loved him. Mm. And I never, I, I, I don't think I ever so much as shook his hand because he didn't rehearse with us. Really? No, no, he, he we would rehearse mm -hmm. and somebody would rehearse, like I'd have a sketch with Dean. Mm -hmm. 
somebody else would rehearse it with me. And then when we're going to shoot it, the audience is there. Uh, Greg Garrison, who was the producer, another mm -hmm. fabulous guy, mm -hmm. um, would say, bring out the kid. <laughs> and they'd bring Dean out and he would look at the cue cards and then it was up to you to have as much fun with him and to get reactions out of him and it nothing was more fun in my whole career wow doing that show yeah wow wow and you did you feel comfortable enough to be yourself and to go for did you go for it oh absolutely oh that's fabulous yeah well they created such a a comfortable, safe situation mm. for performers on that show. Mm. That, yeah. How about doing Laugh-In? I mean, what a iconic show that was. Yeah, no, that was fun. Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about Get Smart because that's what everybody, I mean, Barbara, come on. I spent so much time with Agent 99. I, <laughs> I spent more time with Agent 99 than I did with my best friends. <laughs> Where did that, um, I don't want to, I don't even want to say the words because they shouldn't come out of my mouth, but, oh, Max, I mean, did, was that on the page? Did the director give that to you? How did you come up with that? Everything was on the page. Mm. Every word. Mel Brooks, yes. Buck Henry, oh my God. Every word that was written and nobody had to tell us to adhere to the script or to tell anybody to adhere to the script. I mean, everybody knew how precise mm. um, that writing was. And sometimes we'd be doing a scene and Don would stop in the middle of the scene. He'd say, there's something wrong with this line. And he said, I don't know what it is. Let's go on to something else, which we would. And then in the middle of something else, he would suddenly say, I've got it. And it would be that it had one too many word Wow. In it, uh, everything was timing. <laughs> That's the cliche, isn't it? Timing is everything. And timing was everything. In Were Mel and Buck on the set? Were they? Buck was mainly in his little office near the set. He would come on the set and we had mm -hmm. adored him. Um, uh, occasionally, but he was, he said once that he felt like we had more fun than he did because he was just constantly grinding out scripts, mm. you know, in his room. So I got to know Buck. Um, Mel did, did not stay with the show once it was, uh, you know, I think he wrote maybe three of them over the course of. I year. see. You, you, I may not have this quite right. Mm -hmm. But it's something like that. And I think he directed one in the beginning. Uh, but no, uh, he he was he did not he did not come to the set. I got to know Mel somewhat after that, but but not during the uh, the show. When he when he directed, how was he on as a, on the set? Was because my experience with Mel once he was very funny and exactly as he is on the screen, and once he was completely different and really really serious. Uh, so when he was directing you, was he the funny guy or was he the serious guy? No, he or was, both. He 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 was doing a job. Mm -hmm. he, he was very concentrated on mm -hmm. you know what had to 
And so did you and Don have a chemistry? So they, they, they hired you without an audition. Um, did they, and they hired you obviously without having you read with Don. Nor stand next to Don. What? Nor stand next to him. So, so they didn't know that there was a height. Know, I mean, they may have known. Don had had a joke because they showed him an episode that uh, of another series that I where I played this industrial agent. Mm. So they showed him what I would be like as his, you know, coworker. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said he, uh, he 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 looked at it and he saw part of the scene. He said, it's fine. She's great. You know, it's right. And he got up to leave. He said he, he looked back as he got to the door, just as Craig Stevens, who I was playing with, stood up. He said, Craig Stevens is six foot four. <laughs> Barbara got up and she was taller than Craig Stevens. <laughs> wow. But it was so perfect. Okay, so... So you and Don meet for the first time. Now, from what I've read in your book, it or heard you tell, I can't remember which now. I haven't gotten to that part of the book, actually. I'm still in your Lucien period. Um, you meet for the first time. What is it like with you two? Um, it, it was, it's one of those phenomenons. Don and I, I can't say had any chemistry whatsoever. I mean, if if we met at a party, we would not go home together. Okay, uh, we. It's not that we disliked each other. We just, mm -hmm. there was just no common. There was no whatever. There was those little things that go through the air that you don't. You know that. This is unbelievable to learn. The minute we were Agent Ninety Nine. And mm -hmm. Max, it was everything was there. So wow, and Max had this absolute uh, communion, you know. And it gives me goosebumps. I mean, thinking of you two together was just—you were perfection together. Perfection. It worked. Oh and my God! No did it? Idea it would work until we shot the first scene. And did you know? Is did you know as soon as you were doing it with him? Oh yeah, this is this is on. This is no. I was just so happy to have said my lines without making a mistake. <laughs> All I cared about was like. <laughs> so then, did you watch the play? Did they let you watch the play? Did, when did you know? Wow. I never. I don't think I ever characterized it that way I mean they were coming down to the set I mean the the, the producers mm -hmm. uh, every day every week and saying the ratings are this and I I didn't watch much TV ever in my life and um, so I didn't know what the ratings were and I really didn't care this was a job you know, I knew it was a good thing that the show was doing well because it mm -hmm. was a good job. Mm -hmm. And uh, but then after it became, it very quickly became the, the number one. Your life had to change very drastically, very suddenly. I'm guessing. Well, it it really didn't because we did 52 episodes that year. Mm -hmm. Wow! So my life was getting up at 
you mm. know, 5.30 or 6 and getting to the studio and staying there till 7.30, going home, studying lines. And that was really my life. Mm. Um, living in California, you're not with, it's not like walking out on the street here in New York. Right. People see you and recognize you. You're in your car and right. you occasionally go to a restaurant, but mm -hmm. where are you, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was kind of, to be honest, kind of unaware of, you know, I, I did the things that I was expected to do, like publicity. And um, it was just a really, I was very grateful to have that job. And so it, it was five years. Did, did you and Don, and I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you for everybody else. Did you and Don warm up? Um, it, it wasn't that we were ever cold. We were always friendly. And mm -hmm. he called me Barbie doll. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. kind of sweet. And we were, we were sweet together. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, a little this and that, conversation here and there. But I don't think we ever had like a conversation. But when would you? I mean, you, so you were working. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And um, it wasn't until almost 20 years later, we worked together again. They did a... Or the reboot. Yeah, for, uh, as an ABC movie. Mm -hmm. and, and I say this in the book, it's as though little seeds have been planted during those early years. And when, when the show went off the air, we didn't call each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I got a phone call from CBS and said, fine, that was it. Uh, I didn't hear from him. He didn't hear from me. Mm -hmm. it, it would have been weird to have it any other way. But 20 years later, it's as though those little seeds had sprouted and blossomed into this sweet, affectionate, Oh, uh, relationship which lasted for the rest of his life, really. Oh, great, great fondness. Ah, that's so lovely, Barbara. You are, you. I, I I'm. I almost am going to cry because you have so exceeded all of my very, very high expectations uh, as as a writer, as a woman, as a person. I just adore you. I am so loving it. And, and you feel totally as, as uh, what is it called? As a peer. I mean, I can't believe I'm, I can't believe we're not exactly the same age and having lived through all the same things. And I love that when I read in the book that when you were living in the village, you used to walk around in jeans and a t-shirt. I can't picture you in jeans and a t-shirt, no matter how hard I try. <laughs> really? That's what I mostly wear here is jeans and a sweater jeans and a t-shirt jeans and you a are so magnificent and sophisticated and gorgeous and you're just amazing you, Thank you. i i hope that you know that you set the bar for um sophistication and and sexiness and smart and you 99 was everything a woman should be um, funny and smart and classy and sexy and gorgeous. And um, for all us little girls who grew up with you, I thank you for, for setting this, it's making me cry, for setting this example of all that a woman can be. And to see that you are that woman in the reels 
is um, just a beautiful thing. Well, you you made my heart happy. Thank you. That that is such a, such a dear thing to hear, and I so appreciate it. Um, I mean, ninety nine actually. Uh, we we can thank Buck and Mel mm. <laughs> for ninety nine's character, um, but I. I, I, it has been such a pleasure talking with you, and I feel like, and I hope when you come to New York, we'll get together, because yes. I, we have so much more to explore. We and certainly do. Will just, you come back and do the show again and talk more? Oh, I, I would love to. Oh, and excellent. I would love to talk about celebrity, because celebrity is such a, a national obsession today and talk tell 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 me your thoughts well um you can't do anything with celebrity i mean i guess some people make money with celebrity now Mm -hmm. so it's a business that's something Mm -hmm. else but people the media the um uh, the kids that go online and and become influencers okay that that can make money too and that's what they want mm-hmm. but just to be seen to be known by lots of people mm-hmm. um you can't live that mm-hmm. you know all you can live is your day and the one person you're talking to you know or the people around you it's something celebrity is in the minds of other people it's not something that you can that that you can use, you know. I mean, this is just my opinion, but when I was at the height of the uh, when we were at the height of, of the show's popularity, mm-hmm. and our pictures were all over the place and everything, and I thought, you know, I still get up in the morning, maybe in a bad mood, you know, or. Mm maybe feeling dreary or um, go into my garden and with my cat and it's just me and the cat and all we can do is live our moments. We can't live in the public eye has no meaning. I don't know if this is making any sense. It's making total sense. I'm wondering, okay, so when your life had complete, when you were at the height of it and everywhere you went, I'm yeah. sure people were coming up to you and doing all of that. Did it did it feel good? Did you like it? Did you stop liking it? Did, was it uncomfortable? What was that like for you? You were the most famous woman in the world for a while. It it was um, always sweet because mm-hmm. the people were so nice. I never mm-hmm. had a bad experience. I was at the level of of celebrity that was like medium celebrity not oh i don't know movie star celebrity must be really painful when (laughs) paparazzi and all of that Mm -hmm. i didn't get any of that what i got were people stopping me on the street and saying they enjoyed the show or Mm. wanting an autograph or something and it was always just made me feel welcome in the world and that was that was the best of it Mm. you know um but beyond that, I didn't see the value in it. You know, I didn't see that there was anything to prize in it. 
because ultimately you have to live your minutes mm. and be present in those minutes. Mm. And that's where the value is. Did you get to do everything you wanted to do creatively? Uh, probably not because you get identified, you know, with comedy or with a character. Mm. Uh, but I, 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 that comes with it. I knew that would be true. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when I was cast in Get Smart, mm -hmm. I had just been cast in a movie and um, the group, uh, Sidney Lumet was directing it. And I was one of the five oh, women me. in the group. And so I was going to do this movie. It was my first movie. And uh, then I got offered Get Smart. And my agent said, you can either do the movie and take your chances, although I'm telling you right now, this is Candace Bergen's first movie, and she's playing a lesbian in a tuxedo, <laughs> and guess who's going to get all the publicity? <laughs> it isn't going to be you. And, um, and I, or you can do this series and, and really secure your future. And you I had a very wise count. You had very wise counsel. I didn't think about it for five minutes. Mm. You know? How about when you worked with Barbara Eden? Did you ever go through a thing where, because you were the barb, you were the barbers, you were both the beautiful, you were the brunette and the blonde barbers. Were you friends? What was it like to work together? Uh, we worked together on one television movie, mm -hmm. and I love her. Mm. She's she's just. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say anything against her. She's gracious. She's down to earth, mm. uh, accessible, you know, lovely. Because you both, the, the two barbers, the brunette and the you, you're like the two most gorgeous women on the planet. <laughs> Just uh... <laughs> hardly. No, uh, well, okay, we won't go too deeply into that, but um, well, maybe she was. Ah, uh, you both. Anyway. Um... All right. I have to know you in real life. This is a must thing. I have to come to New York because we have to lunch or something. And um, and I definitely want to have you back just to hear your thoughts on life, on being a woman, all of these things. Um, you're so thoughtful. And I love the work you've done on yourself. Um, and I can feel that you are this grounded person, not pretending to be one. I want what you've got. <laughs> I do. Um, I'm sure you have it. No, I'm still reactive and nuts, but You're, I'm working on it. Yeah. Um, thank anyway. you so, so it much, Barbara. I absolutely, you. I just could not adore you more. It would be impossible. Impossible. It was such a dear pleasure talking with you. And I look forward to the next time, whether it's over tea or absolutely and everybody i'm telling you if, if every whatever you're streaming is not as good as the, i could not i could not turn the pages fast enough getting smarter i know there's light shining on it i'm going to put the links in the liner notes so that you can find it get it today it, amazon will have it to you by tomorrow and if you want a hardcover you can get it on barbara's website and i'll give you the link for that um I, I've got to get off the air because I've got to get back and find out how you got rid of Lucy. <laughs> anyway, Barbara, thank you so much again. I thank love you. you. I adore you. Thank you. Such Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.